June 29 edition of BFTOT, continuing to make our way through hiatus period. July 25 is when PFT Live returns. I saw that was one of the questions today. So question answered right out of the gates. July 25, we'll be back until then every weekday, mostly every weekday, probably not next Monday since it's 4th of July, but either way, most weekdays we'll be here. And the big story continues to be in the National Football League, the Deshaun Watson hearing. It started yesterday. There has been scant reporting about anything that actually happened during the hearing. My guess, based upon my own experience, is that Judge Sue L. Robinson, who is presiding over this process, told the parties at the outset in no uncertain terms to shut the hell up. No leaks, no discussion, no anything. The consequences will be swift and significant if anyone blabs. I think that's why the process went a full day with nothing that really delves into what happened in that room, wherever it's happening. And the biggest question continues to be whether she will let the union delve into this argument of proportional treatment of Deshaun Watson in relation to three owners who have potentially violated the personal conduct policy in recent years. That is going to be one of the keys to whether or not Watson is able to have the kind of defense that even if there's a finding he did something wrong, results in a minimal punishment. There's been some reporting about whether or not the NFL would appeal a final decision from Judge Robinson if she gives Watson a suspension in the range of six or eight games. It came from Rob Motti of the Associated Press last night that if Robinson lands in that six to eight game window, the NFL would be inclined to not appeal because it wants to end this horrible process, yada, yada, yada. It's fine. I don't buy it. I don't buy it for one very important reason. The NFL is not in the habit of waiving its rights. The NFL exercises its rights. Why bother to secure the rights at the bargaining table with the union if you're not going to use them? Because when you use them, you remind the other side that you have them. If you would like to take them away, you must give us something in return. The NFL doesn't ever, in my recollection or estimation, back down when it has rights that it can fully implement against a player in any given setting, because there's a broader dance here. It's not just about Deshaun Watson. It's about collective bargaining. Case in point, as marijuana becomes legalized in state after state after state where the NFL does business, you think the NFL is just going to throw the substance abuse policy out the window? No, because it's collectively bargained. In other words, if you want it to go away, you got to give us something to make it worth our while to get rid of it because we have it. You want it, we have it. You better give us something else that we want if you want the thing that we have. It's that simple. So I, I think that they'll appeal if it's a decision they don't like. It all comes down to what the decision ultimately is. And remember, the process will be at this point, Judge Robinson issues a decision. Either side can appeal, both sides can appeal. Watson can appeal to try to get a lower punishment. The league can appeal to try to get a higher punishment. If the league pushes through and Roger Goodell ultimately overturns the decision and imposes a longer suspension than whatever Judge Robinson decides to implement, that's when the court process becomes a possibility. I wrote something about this earlier today, and I think it's worth mentioning here. 
And we need to understand just as a basic matter of how this works. You've got two private entities, NFL, NFL Players Association. Under the federal labor laws, they put together a collective bargaining agreement that includes a process for dealing with these kinds of controversies. Player gets in trouble off the field. There is a procedure in the CBA for implementing discipline on him based upon whether or not he actually did it. That's all handled between the parties. It is an alternate dispute resolution process. It reduces the number of cases otherwise we go to court. And the courts love this. There's been an explosion over the last 40 years or so of these ADR techniques, mediation, arbitration, et cetera. And every case that gets resolved without a judge being involved is one less case that has to be thrown on to a federal or state court legal docket. And judges don't get paid by the case. They don't get paid by the hour. They get paid by the year. So they don't want any more work than they otherwise get. And they love it when that work otherwise is done through a private process. And I say all that because you have to overcome that mindset if you're going to get a judge to take up the case of Deshaun Watson versus the National Football League. We saw it with Tom Brady several years ago. He won at the trial court level, ultimately lost on appeal. We saw it with Ezekiel Elliott. There were some initial victories, but at the end of the day, he lost too. And one of the reasons why I believe that Deshaun Watson would quite possibly lose, it, 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 there has been precedent created by the Brady case and the Elliott case, the reasoning as to these procedures, that they should be respected, that they are bargained for by a union. It's going to be hard for Deshaun Watson to have something tangible that would properly overturn whatever the result of this collectively bargained process is. But, but when you look a little more carefully, in the two cases, Brady and Elliott, there were eight total judges that looked at the issue, four-sided with the players, four-sided with the league. So there is a lot of potential forum shopping and maybe a race to a courthouse here or there that could become a factor. I know I talked about that yesterday, but I can't rule out the possibility of litigation and there still is a possibility that if the NFLPA can thread the popcorn just right, that maybe, maybe they can end up getting themselves an outcome that results in the Deshaun Watson suspension that ultimately is imposed by the commissioner after Judge Robinson does her work being overturned. I do have an idea, though. And I was on Cleveland radio with Tony Rizzo, and, and, and I thought of something. And and I'll tell you how this all came to be. Because I've gotten this question a few times, but it never made the light flash the way it did for me today. Doesn't he get credit for last year? Doesn't that count as time served? And the easy answer to that question is no, it doesn't. Because it wasn't a situation where he was put on paid leave. This was, he doesn't want to play for the Texans. The Texans don't want him playing for them. The Texans want to trade him and they are content to pay him $10 million to not play all year if that's what it takes as they await their opportunity to trade the Deshaun Watson contract. And it ultimately worked out. They got the Browns to give them a bunch of stuff for Deshaun Watson. And all they had to do was pay him an extra $10 million last year to make it happen. Now, so when we look at it from what's already happened, it really doesn't count. However, and this is something I saw in the CBA recently that, that laid the foundation for this idea. And I didn't know this. If you put a guy on paid leave, let's say you put a player on paid leave for a year. Then after the fact, 
whatever it was that caused him to be put on paid leave. Let's say there's a prosecution, an actual prosecution, not just an investigation, but he's indicted, he's prosecuted, he's tried, he's acquitted, but there's still a finding he violated the personal conduct policy and he's suspended for a year. What they actually do is they go back and they just take the money that he made while he was on one year of paid leave. He served that year. So the one year suspension is canceled out and he can come back and play. And, and I say that, here's my point. I'm suggesting a settlement here because I don't think Judge Robinson is gonna come to this decision. I don't think the league is asking for it within the confines of the procedure. But I think a fair settlement would be to treat last year as a suspension after the fact, to have Deshaun Watson pay a fine of $10 million, every penny he earned last year, forfeited after the fact. So you treat last year as if it was an unpaid suspension. And then you tack on to it six or eight games this year. Because I don't think it's enough to say, oh, hey, folks, by the way, we've decided to resolve this by saying last year was a suspension. Everything's fine now. He can play as of week one. I don't think that's going to fly. But if you could do six or eight games this year on top of the full season last year with 10 million forfeited, that also addresses this idea that, hey, he's only got a $1 million salary this year. He misses half the year. He's losing 500,000. Something doesn't sit well with that. So you get a $10.5 million fine. Last year is treated as a suspension. Half of this year is a suspension. Did we just accidentally discover plutonium? Maybe we did. Wouldn't that be an acceptable outcome for both sides? Let me know what you think. Twitter, comments on PFT, wherever. I'll probably write something about this idea for a proposed settlement. Who knows? They'll probably settle it with some other terms by the time I get around to it. But, but that's, that's something that I, I just think makes sense. And like so many things that make sense, those are the things that never actually happen. Before I get to some questions today, I do want to take just a minute or two to remind everyone out there, if you haven't read our annual item about the late Joe Delaney, please do so. I write it every year on June 29 because every year I hear from people who did not know the story of Joe Delaney. 24 years old at the time, he had played two years in the NFL. He had 1,121 rushing yards as a rookie in 1981 with the Kansas City Chiefs, number 37, great player, injured for a lot of his second year, but still a lot of promise. A lot of years left in the NFL. He was at a park in Louisiana, saw three boys struggling in a man-made pond, jumped in to save them, even though he was not a very good swimmer. He said so himself before he jumped in and he gave his life in an effort to save those three boys. One managed to get out, two of the boys died. And Joe Delaney, who had a wife and three young daughters at the time, made the ultimate sacrifice, not just for family members or friends, for people he didn't even know, strangers. He gave his life in an effort to help those three boys because he felt compelled to do it. And uh, it's the kind of heroism that is rare. It's the kind of selflessness that is even more rare. And I, I really do look at that every year as an inspiration for myself and hopefully for anyone else who sees what Joe Delaney did. There's so many opportunities in life to do the right thing, even if doing the right thing leads to some consequences. And the consequences we're talking about when it's time to do the right thing in our own day-to-day -day lives rarely involve potentially giving up your life. There are other things on the line, far less than death, when the question arises as to whether or not you're gonna do the right thing or say the right thing. And I just think it's a worthwhile commentary and observation. 
in these times where we could use a few more Joe Delaney's in all walks of life. All right, let's see what we have here by way of some questions. Just like yesterday, didn't get around to taking a look at them ahead of time. So we, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll be in for a surprise or two. First, I got to find the tweet. I apologize for not queuing it up in advance. There's the tweet. Great. 39 responses. Uh, let's see what we have here. PFTPM Posse. Can Congress also hold Daniel Snyder accountable for those horrible and creepy Six Flags commercials from, from like the 90s with that weird dude in old face doing all the weird dancing moves? Nightmare fuel, in parentheses. I... I, uh, I think that was about 15 years ago, and I think it was when Daniel Snyder owned Six Flags, and uh, that did not go well for Daniel Snyder. Maybe the best thing about Daniel Snyder's tenure as the owner of the Six Flags Music Park was those commercials with the old guy dancing frenetically. Here's a, another question from PFTP and Posse, hopefully slightly less facetious than the first. Could a player's lawyer argue that they preemptively preemptively filed a lawsuit opposing NFL punishment because they knew what the punishment would be already. And because of simultaneous submission by the NFL, it's their only chance. That's basically what Ezekiel Elliott did. Ezekiel Elliott filed a case in Texas, favorable forum, and won on the merits, lost ultimately on the argument that he filed his lawsuit too quickly. You have to be able to say you filed your lawsuit once the the controversy had matured. And the problem is the NFL always has that inside information, as I said yesterday, as to when to go ahead and file the lawsuit because the NFL knows when the decision is going to be finalized. Another one from PFTPM Posse. Looking and thinking back, are you glad that the OG PFTPM Posse was able to convince you to keep doing PFTPM after you threatened to quit the week of April 20, 2018 Happy coincidence, it was during the week of 420. And how was the KISS jersey? Oh, that's the little passive aggressive. Hey, we bought you a signed KISS jersey. Go back and give us free content. Look, th there was a time, and, and uh, I'll peel back the curtain. What the hell? We're all friends here, for the most part. Um, PFTPM was launched while... I was doing PFT Live as a radio show with a simulcast on NBCSN. And it was something at first I just dabbled in for, for fun. Someone at Westwood One began to encourage me to do PFTPM on a daily basis, on a regular basis, with the idea that if basically if you build it, they will come. If you do it, it will become some sort of profitable enterprise. And I started doing it and it, it frankly never became a profitable enterprise, at least not at the time. Different story more recently, but that, that's, that's the backstory on all that. So I didn't make a whole lot of money doing PFTPM back in the old days when it was audio only. I enjoyed doing it though. It was fun to talk with no real limits or guidance or, or agenda, just whatever happened to come up, came up. So. Uh, long story bearable, there was a profit motive to the original old school PFTPM that was audio only. It just never quite came to fruition, even though I was led to believe that it would. I still did it anyway, because, hey, I got the signed Kiss jersey out of it. And I got that going for me, as Bill Murray once said, which is nice. Here's a question 
sent to us by PFDPM Posse, but originating with at Tyler Herger. If Judge Sue Robinson recommends no punishment, does that mean Deshaun Watson gets no suspension and the NFL will hand Robinson her 120 days notice of discharge? If Robinson recommends any punishment, does that mean the union will hand her a 120 day notice of discharge? No, I, I think if, if she would find no punishment whatsoever and no appeal and cuts off the ability of Roger Goodell to do anything, I think the NFL would be inclined to potentially exercise its right to hire a new disciplinary officer. I don't think the union will get rid of Judge Robinson just based upon the fact that she, she issues any suspension. You, you, can't, you can't do that in response to every case. The loser can't say, fire the judge, let's go get another one. And, and I think the biggest concern is if she allows the argument based upon the suspension or lack thereof imposed on Daniel Snyder, Robert Kraft, and Jerry Jones, if she allows that to become basically three trials within the Deshaun Watson trial sort of, that's when I think the NFL would say, maybe we have the wrong person in this job because it shouldn't be about these owners. It should be about Deshaun Watson. Another question, Neil watches PFT and we appreciate that very much. Day two of the Watson disciplinary hearings. Have you heard any leaks from Watson's camp or NFL PA representatives of what the talks were like? This goes back to what I said earlier, everyone, is keeping their mouths shut. And I think that is at the direct behest of Judge Robinson. And the fact that they're doing it shows that they do respect her and they respect the process, which is good news for everyone. Manuel Villa, are we to assume that the woman suing the Texans is one of the four women that did not settle with Watson or can a plaintiff double dip in a civil case? And moving forward, can we expect any case involving the Texans to include Watson as well? Good question, good question. I don't know whether or not the person who sued the Texans on Monday has already sued Deshaun Watson. But if you've already sued Deshaun Watson, you just amend your complaint and you add the Texans as a defendant. The fact that this lawsuit was set up as, and I can't remember the name of the plaintiff, versus the Texans without Watson mentioned, I'm going to guess that she hasn't already sued Deshaun Watson. And maybe what they're going to do is force the Texans to join Deshaun Watson as a third-party defendant. See, this is where it becomes law nerd stuff pretty quickly. But what happens here, for those who haven't settled with Deshaun Watson, claims against the Texans will result in the Texans saying to Deshaun Watson, you're responsible for this, not us. You're responsible for your criminal misconduct. We're not responsible for it. And if you're the plaintiff, you love a case like that because you just sit back and you let the two defendants fight it out. The Texans will be saying, it's not our fault, it's his fault. Now, I don't know what Sean Watson would say. He's not gonna say it's not my fault, it's their fault because their fault flows from his behavior. But you would like to have the Texans blaming Deshaun Watson. The smart move if you're two different defendants who are being pursued by the same plaintiff is to find a way to work together and have what we would call a united front among the two parties pushing back against the plaintiff. I don't know if the Texans are gonna to wanna to do that because then you're signing on to his defense too. So I have a feeling, and, I, and again, I like doing this because it forces me to slow down and think about things a little bit more thoroughly. I have a feeling that this individual is not one of the people who has sued Deshaun Watson. And this person is forcing the Texans 
to sue Deshaun Watson. Wouldn't that be something? Doesn't that create a different vibe, a different headline? For somebody who just has a very casual understanding of the legal system, if there's a headline on other media outlets, Texans sue Deshaun Watson, wow. Doesn't that give it more credibility? It's one thing for some person that, you know, you're like, oh, it's all a big money grab. There's too many people involved for it to be a conspiracy. I will repeat that every day that I have to until people understand. You cannot hold a conspiracy like that together for 15 months and counting. But boy, if it's Texans suing Deshaun Watson, that just has a different vibe to it. That has a different feel to it. And that may be where this latest case that was filed on Monday is heading. Neil watches PFT when PFT is on hiatus. Does Chris just live in a month long fog? I think he's been doing his podcast. I think he's been, he's, he's, he's around. He's productive. He's a productive member of society. He's just not, you know, sitting there with a bong for 30 days. I don't think you could do it for 30 days. I mean, I couldn't do it for 30 seconds, but I don't think you could do it for 30 days. I not that I'm an expert in those matters, but I think he's doing other things. Ashley Riddler, have you sorted out your passport yet? You'll need to if you want to escape to us in the UK. Also more fun topic than the rest of the legalese you're having to churn out. If you had a chance to bring in a new NFL rule or change a current rule, which one would it be? Well, Ashley, if you read Playmakers, and hopefully you will if you haven't already, and anyone out there that's familiar with what we do at all knows that the rule that I hate more than anything is the rule that makes a fumble by the offense that goes out of bounds in the end zone the uh, result being the defense gets the ball on their own 20. That makes no sense to me. If the ball goes out of bounds at the one inch line, the offense has possession at the spot of the fumble. The fact that it goes into the end zone should not change that. If the defense recovers it, fine. But the idea that the end zone is some sort of holy ground, that if you just accidentally drop the ball into it, and it goes out of bounds, it goes to the defense. Why? What's the defense done to deserve possession of the ball, nothing. So that was the, the one change that I would make if I had the opportunity to do so. A fumble by an offensive player short of the goal line that goes into the end zone and then out of bounds becomes the possession of the offense at the spot of the fumble, just like it would if the ball went out of bounds at the one. Paul Good, where is Frank Clark in his legal issues and why was he never placed on the commissioner exempt list? It feels like this was brushed under the carpet. He wasn't placed on the commissioner exempt list because even though felony charges will get you placed on paid leave, it's got to be a felony charge involving some sort of element of violence, an assault, a battery, something like that. Just for any old felony charge, that doesn't get you put on paid leave. And I don't know where the status is of his case. It's, it's a weapons charge in Los Angeles. I think he allegedly had possession of an Uzi or something along those lines. I don't know where that stands, but obviously it's not just something that, that magically goes away. There's either going to be a plea or there's going to be a trial or they find some you know, magical evidence out of nowhere. Like in my cousin Vinny, maybe the state decides to dismiss all charges as the prosecutor said at the end of the movie. I think that it's still pending and I think it's something that's going to have to be dealt with by Clark at some point. Zach McDermott is Neil Watch's PFT, a burner account used to ensure that there's always a backlog of questions. No, 
I have no burner account. And I know, oh, sure you don't. Sure, Jan, I have no burner account. There's no value in having a burner account. And I guarantee you, if I had a burner account, I would pull a Skip Bayless and screw it up at some point. Remember when he did that? He had some burner account and he started posting compliments to himself accidentally through his main account. There is nothing good that comes from having a burner account because sooner or later, you will be burned by your burner account. I am not nearly sufficiently savvy enough to remember to shift to the right account when it's time to, and I just don't care, like, there's no, there's just no need for it. So no, Neil watches PFT is an actual person. It is not affiliated with PFT in any way, shape or form. And Neil watches PFT has a, another question. How was the PFT meeting of the minds? Uh, everyone was here Monday and Tuesday, Miles, Shireen, MDS and Josh. We spent, some of us did because Josh was still traveling. We had lunch on Monday afternoon. We got together for dinner on Monday night. We were hanging out here for a while, not here, here, we were outside. Yesterday, we had a nice lunch at a golf club uh, close to town, just on the outskirts of town. We went to the shooting range nearby where we shot some skeet for a while, and then we, we came back here. And I, I got to give them credit. Anytime there was downtime, they worked. And it's not like I told them, hey, hey we got some downtime. You better go work. Anytime that they had downtime, it was just like any other day. And we kept putting out content because they, they understand that this never sleeps and it's a fun job. I hope they think it's fun. I know it's fun for me. We had a good couple of days. And I, I don't want to say in a public setting that no business was discussed because I don't want to jeopardize the write-off. I mean, we did discuss the Deshaun Watson case and different things about how we handle things. And so, so there was business discussed that way. It was just kind of like brainstorming sessions, but it wasn't like it was some sort of a business meeting with any real agenda. It was just, let's get together. We rarely see each other. There's value in spending some time together because most of the time we just text each other and only do we ever get together at the Super Bowl. This is the one exception. Let's see what else we have. Max with a bunch of numbers after his name. What would it take for Deshaun Watson to be voted for a legal ward Pro Bowl All-Pro team after all of this? Well, I... Now, a legal ward is voted on by the media. Would the media set aside this behavior and make a decision based solely on his on-field performance? I don't know why not. Pro Bowl, one-third players, one-third coaches, one-third media. No, fans, excuse me. Would fans hold it against him? I could see a lot of Browns fans mobilizing to get him in. They got Peyton Hillis on the cover of Madden for crying out loud a decade ago. I don't think coaches or players are going to hold it against him. Look, there is value in putting this behind you and moving forward. And once it's behind you and you move forward, people focus on what comes next. Ben Roethlisberger was able to put a similar situation behind him 12 years ago. So I, I think the only thing that becomes an issue is, is Hall of Fame. If he's a borderline case and, well, yeah, you, you missed all of 2021 and you you know, I know they're not supposed to consider off-field issues, but it's a close case. It could be enough to make people make a stronger argument against him based upon his credentials. Now, I'm not arguing he shouldn't be in based upon the off-field issues. I'm just arguing that he wasn't good enough statistically. He didn't win enough championships, didn't win any championships, whatever the case may be. So I could see at some point it being an issue for his Hall of Fame candidacy if he otherwise has a career good enough to get there. But I just don't think it affects in any way, shape, or form any short-term awards. If, if he plays again, and I assume he will, and he plays well enough, he should get whatever benefits flow from
from that performance. Uh, all right, I need to wrap this up. Just looking to see if there's anything uh, else here. And here's the question, when is PFT Live back? Again, July 25, we'll see you then, but we'll see you before then. Um, here's a question from Cody Marmon. Outside of Todd Bowles, because he has Tampa Tom, which first year head coach is in the best situation and why is it Nathaniel Hackett? I don't know that, that Nathaniel Hackett's in the best situation of a first-year head coach. The expectations are a little bit unrealistic for the Broncos. And I don't know how Russell Wilson's going to do in an offense where he's the centerpiece. He has wanted to be the centerpiece for a long time. The Seahawks resisted making him the centerpiece. The Seahawks would very much like to be proven right with respect to the reality that, that they uh, they they didn't make him a Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen. This is the straw that stirs the drink at all times. But I don't know that it's a great spot. And also you're gonna have a new owner too. And I don't care what anyone says. New owners like to hire their own people. And Nathaniel Hackett's gonna have to prove himself to this new ownership group if he wants to be the coach of that team for a long time. I like the situation Josh McDaniels is in, even though it's a ridiculously competitive division, I think the bar is a little bit lower but they've got some pretty good talent and it'll be interesting to see what he does in his second act. And also when you're looking for low expectations coupled with a team that's potentially pretty good, Kevin O'Connell's not in a bad spot. They've got some weapons on offense. They're going to be much more creative offensively. It's going to be a pass happy offense. I mean, think about what they did offensively with a curmudgeonly coach who was a Bill Parcells disciple who wanted to play defense and run the ball. You unlock the potential of this offense as a passing enterprise. The, and, and you look at the NFC where it's the Bucks and it's the Rams and yeah, the Packers, but Devontae Adams is gone. And what have they really done to replace him? And, and there's an opportunity there for the Vikings to make some noise. So I think Kevin O'Connell may have fallen into a pretty good spot um with uh, with the vikings with the talent that they have and i think that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen big overhaul you know a lot of these teams come in coaches come in new regimes come in and they get rid of everybody because we want our own people quasi adolfo mensa and kevin o'connell show up and they look around it's like hey what the hell we got a pretty good team here and maybe the team thrived for reasons unrelated to talent maybe the team thrived because of dysfunction because of coaching and uh, that may not be a bad spot Kevin O'Connell. This is a good spot for me to wrap it up. Thanks as always for some of your time. We'll see you again on I lost track of the day. Thursday. That would be tomorrow for another edition of PFTOT. Until then, check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Have a great day.